Good morning and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth and meaning. We're very glad you're here. It is our aspiration to be welcoming to people of all cultural backgrounds, gender identifications, sexual preferences, political parties. I would like to extend a special welcome to those of you who are visiting with us for the first time. If you have questions about this church or about Unitarian Universalism, please do ask the friendly people at the visitor table and they will tell you everything that you need to know. If you have been coming for a while and you feel you would like to make this your spiritual home, we'd be delighted if you were to sign the membership book and um, make a pledge of record and that makes you a member. We come from a long heritage of teaching that there is a spark of the divine in every person. And it is in the spirit of that heritage that I say, let us greet the holy in our midst by turning to the person to your right and left and welcoming them here this morning. Will you please say with me the words by which we light our chalice. In the light of truth and the warmth of love, we gather to seek, to find, and to share. Good morning. My name is Mary Jane Ford, your lay leader for the day. And the call to worship reading is by Wayne Arneson. Take courage, friends. The way is often hard. The path is never clear. And the stakes are very high. Take courage. For deep down, there is another truth. You are not alone. People say, what holds a group together that has... One name, Unitarian Universalists, and yet the people have roots in Christianity or Buddhism or Judaism, uh, humanism, earth-centered traditions, Hinduism. You have your roots so many different places and you call yourself the same thing. What are the things that hold you together? And you can say, well, one of the things that holds us together is our mission, which we say together every Sunday. We gather in community to nourish souls transform lives, and do justice. A prayer from India. Thou art the path and the goal that paths never reach. Thou feed and sustain all that one sees or seems. Thou art the trembling grass and the tiger that creeps under it. Thou art the light in sun and moon the sounds fading into silence, and the sanctity of sacred books. Thou art the good that destroys evil. Let us continue our meditation with the Buddhist loving-kindness prayer or metta meditation. We say this through three times. I'll say a line and you say it after me should you choose to. The first time through, we say this for ourselves. May I be free from danger. May I be mentally happy. May I be physically happy. May I have ease of well-being. The second time we say it for someone we love. May you be free from danger. 
May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. The third time as a spiritual exercise, we say this for someone against whom we have a resentment. May you be free from danger. May you be mentally happy. May you be physically happy. May you have ease of well-being. It's tricky to find um, someone to hold in mind against whom you have a resentment that's not just so completely awful that you can't really even get it out. And someone that's not so kind of like a habitual resentment that's like, yeah, I guess I resent that person. That's not really hard. Hard to find that exact right. So today I want to talk to you about the book called Life of Pi. And um, you may have read it or you may have seen the movie or both. And um, it is just a rich, enormous story. And it's gorged with details of beauty and horrific suffering, compelling mystery, intellectual challenge, philosophical pondering. The story is told to the writer by the adult Pi, who now lives in Canada, the writer says. Um, He begins by talking about his name and how he took the nickname Pi. His real name was Piscine Molitor Patel, a very common last name in India. Uh, His family was from Hyderabad. He um, was named Piscine after a swimming pool in Paris. And his, uh, his uncle used to like to swim there when he was in graduate school. And um, it was a beautiful name because Pi loved to swim with his uncle. But uh, when he got to school, the name Piscine was, um, lent itself to him being called Pissing by this cruel students. You know how they are. And um, so he said, tormented by classmates, He takes the nickname Pi, quote, uh, and so in that Greek letter that looks like a shack with a corrugated tin roof, in that elusive, irrational number with which scientists try to understand the universe, I found refuge. Pi is a religious Hindu boy. He loves the rituals of his household. He loves the smells and the sights, and he recites with his mother the prayers that that his family says, but they go on vacation in the hill country, and as he is walking in the hill country, he he comes across a Christian chapel, and so there's a priest in the chapel. He's drawn to this chapel, and he begins having conversations with the priest. So for three days, his mind is just on fire with the stories of this very ungodlike Jesus person who... Um, has doubts and hunger and allows himself to suffer and uh, finally consents to die. And um, he's fascinated. He asks the priest, why would a God do that? And the priest answers, love. 
So Pi asks the priest if he could please be a Christian. And Pi says, you already are in your heart a Christian. A year after that, he meets a baker in his town who is a a Sufi mystic, a, a mystic Muslim. So he begins talking to him, and the baker is enraptured talking about the beloved, which is how the Sufis talk about God, the beloved. And Pai is on fire again and begins studying the Quran with the baker and having theological discussions. He begins to think of himself as a Muslim. So he asks his parents um, that for his next birthday, he wants a Muslim prayer rug and he wants to be baptized as a Christian. (laughs) Well, both of them are modern Indians, secular and sensible, and so they give him the prayer rug, but they don't really like it. They're taking a walk as a family one day, and they're confronted in the street by the baker and by uh, a Christian priest and by the Hindu pundit. Your son has gone Muslim, says the Hindu pundit. He's a good Christian boy, says the priest. We hope to have him in our choir soon. You're mistaken. He's a good Muslim boy. He comes without fail to Friday prayers, and his knowledge of the Holy Quran is coming along nicely. Well, they have a vigorous debate right there in the street in front of Pai's family, who the family's horrified. And Pai says this was his introduction to interfaith dialogue. (laughs) He must choose, says all the holy men. Well, Pai said, I just want to love God. And he tells the story about Lord Krishna dancing with milkmaids. And Lord Krishna made himself so abundant that he could dance with each milkmaid until one milkmaid began to imagine that he was her partner alone, and then he vanished. Don't hold on to God too tightly, Pai is telling the holy men. So they all allow him to be all three. He's Christian, Hindu, Muslim. But one of his high school teachers, Mr. Kumar, is an atheist. And they begin having conversations. Pai recognizes him with respect and hails him as a brother believer. Like me, he says, you atheists go as far as reason will carry you and then you leap. The agnostics are the ones he can't relate to. Doubt is useful for a while, but you must move on. To choose doubt as a philosophy is like choosing immobility as a method of transportation. (laughs) Pai describes his stance in the world as an intellect confounded and yet a trusting sense of presence and ultimate purpose. Why look at the life with a dry, yeastless factuality, he says, God is a better story. So, Pai's uh, middle-class family owns a zoo. They're zookeepers. Pai grows up being awakened every morning by a pride of lions beginning to roar and peacocks screeching. He knows the tigers. He knows the orangutans, the monkeys. He learns how dangerous their wildness is. And he learns by observation and by learning from his parents how 
much creatures of habit that animals are and how they love their routine, their territory, and hierarchy. This knowledge is what he uses to save his own life later on. So the story goes that the family decides to sell the zoo to a Canadian company, so they pack up all the animals and they board a Japanese freighter bound for Canada. There's a huge storm in the middle of the night. The ship sinks fast, and Pai finds himself on a lifeboat with a zebra who has broken its leg jumping into the boat, a hyena, orangutan, and an adult Bengal tiger by the name of Richard Parker. Over the next several chapters, the hyena eats the zebra and the orangutan. The tiger kills the hyena, and it's down to just Pai and the tiger. So he's thinking, I need to kill the tiger, but how? Maybe I could just not feed the tiger and uh, outlive him. But as he thinks that through... He begins to realize that it would probably be worse to be on a lifeboat with a hungry tiger. (laughs) He spends the night in a panic, quaking. Fear is life's only true opponent, he says. Only fear can defeat life. You might think I lost all hope at that point, he says. I did. As a result, I've perked up and felt much better. We see that in sports all the time, don't we? He says to the writer. The tennis challenger starts strong but soon loses confidence in his playing. The champion racks up the games. But in the final set, when the challenger has nothing left to lose, he becomes relaxed again. Insouciant. Daring. Suddenly he's playing like the devil. And the champion must work hard to get those last points. So it was with me, after losing hope. The next morning it came to him. He must tame the tiger. That's the only plan that will work. He says, and I think this is the most important sentence in the entire book, it was not a question of him or me, but of him and me. It was not a question of him or me, but him and me. But there's more to it, he says. I will come clean. Part of me was glad about Richard Parker. Part of me did not want Richard Parker to die at all, because if he died, I would be left alone with despair, which is an even more formidable foe than a tiger. He reads the lifeboat survival manual. Establishing alpha-omega relationships with major lifeboat pests, he says, is not covered. So, using his knowledge of the animals, he begins to tame the tiger, or train the tiger anyway. He marks his territory. He uses the tiger's weak sea legs to make him seasick. He rocks the boat, and the tiger kind of gets all woozy and weak, and uh, Pai blows this whistle that came with the lifeboat supplies. 
while he's rocking the boat. So the tiger begins to associate the sound of the whistle with feeling weak and woozy, and he does not want Pi to blow that whistle. So this is their way of communication. Pi gathers fresh water for both of them. He gathers food and feeds the tiger and feeds himself. They float together for seven months. They both go blind from malnutrition together. Nearly dead, they wash up on the shore of Mexico together, whereupon the tiger bounds out of the boat and heads into the jungle with not a backward glance, leaving Pai to the Mexican authorities and the Japanese shipping line authorities who take care of him and want to know what happened. He's the sole survivor of this storm at sea. He tells two officials from the shipping company stories of his seven months in the boat. They say it's hard to believe that he was in a small lifeboat with an adult tiger for seven months and lived. We're just being reasonable, they say. Pi replies, so am I being reasonable. I applied my reason at every moment. Reason is excellent for getting food, clothing, and shelter. Reason is the very best toolkit. Nothing beats reason for keeping tigers away. But be excessively reasonable, and you risk throwing out the universe with the bathwater. The Japanese shipping officials insist that Pai tell them what really happened. He insists that they just want another story. Every time you put your experience into words, you make it into a story, and it loses something. Nobody can ever really communicate an experience with another person. You can just put it into words or put it into art or dance or do your best. He says, you just want another story maybe without animals? Yes, we want the story without animals, they say. So he tells them a horrific story where his mother, a brutish chef, a Taiwanese sailor, and he are in the lifeboat together. After a few days, the chef kills the sailor and then Pai's mother. Pai kills the chef and is alone in the boat. So after telling both stories, he asked the Japanese officials of the shipping company which was the better story. The one with the animals, they said. Pai says, thank you, and so it goes with God. I wish I knew what he meant, but I'm talking to you about it. They draw the parallels in a very plodding, literal way. They make the story into an allegory, okay. If the zebra is the sailor who broke his leg, the awful chef is the hyena, the orangutan must be Pi's mother, then the tiger is Pi. I think life sometimes is like being shipwrecked. You're drifting for long periods of time, feeling powerless. You don't really know where you're going. You're not going where you had planned to go, that's for sure. And there's a tiger in the boat with you. There's always a tiger in the boat with you. Maybe it's your fear. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe the tiger is your wild side, or maybe it's that little element in you that just loves to mess things up when it's going too well. 
Maybe your tiger is addiction or maybe it's loneliness or the sense of being invisible. Maybe anger is what threatens to destroy you, but if you kill it, you also kill a piece of yourself that keeps you alive. The answer is not you or the tiger, it's you and the tiger. So, I see this as a very good Unitarian Universalist story. And that's probably because I'm a Unitarian Universalist minister, and we just learned a Yiddish proverb last night to the, to the worm in the horseradish, life is horseradish. To the Unitarian Universalist minister, all books are about Unitarian Universalist spirituality. (laughs) But what what Pi did was he drifted um, moment to moment, having let go of hope, having let go of telling himself stories about what was happening. Why did this happen? What's going to happen next? Just drifting in the boat for seven months, paying attention to the tiger, honoring the tiger, not, uh, really understanding that the tiger was not his friend, um, and yet that he c- couldn't kill the tiger. Um, he has surrendered. And I'm reminded of a story that happened while we lived in New Jersey where... Um, a father and his son, who was somewhere on the autism spectrum, the, the son, they were in their boat and it capsized and they were in their life jackets for three days before um, they got rescued and they were separated in the night. And the father was, of course, just anguished, horrified, worried about his son, who was maybe 14. Um, and when the son was picked up, he was okay because he was wired in such a way that he was just in the moment, every moment of drifting, and he didn't tell himself stories about it, and he didn't wonder about past and future. He was just there. And so he was less traumatized than they would have expected, just because he was drifting. And Pi was just drifting in the boat. And he wonders about a lot of things, but he's not He's not anguished because he has decided to just live until he dies. Just live until you die. That's pretty simple. And it cuts down on a lot of storm and throng. So um, in our faith tradition, we are free to be drawing from the Muslim tradition, the Hindu tradition, the Christian tradition, the Jewish tradition. We're free, and there are people in our families or people in the world that say, oh, you have cafeteria spirituality. You have to choose. Um, well, we chose to be here in this cafeteria. And we choose what our meal is, and then we eat it. And so we choose our, our faith path, and then we practice it. And we call ourselves Unitarian Universalists, even though maybe there are people from uh, traditions that feel as if they're the only one that do not understand that. We are free to tell our own story about what it is we worship Anyone who tries to tell a story about an experience of mystery is diminishing the mystery. As Lao Tzu says, the Tao which can be named is not the Tao. Anytime you name it, it's not it anymore. 
But you may tell a story of a God who holds the whole world in her hands, and she is a lovely earth mother who cares about you. Or you may tell a story of God who who knows suffering and shares in our suffering and holds the secret of, of death, real death in his heart. Your idea may be, may be of God as the one flame from which all the other candles are lit. You may think of a force of love or truth or justice that flows through the universe. And we're all wrong. That's the relaxing thing. <laughs> you choose and tell your story. might have animals in it or it might not. It's still a story of your experience, and it still is what helps your soul blossom like a rose, and it helps you tame the tiger, or at least train it. Please say with me the words by which we extinguish our chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. If you know this benediction song, please feel free to sing along. I know this rose will open. I know my fear will burn away. I know my soul will unfurl its wings. I know this rose will open. Go in peace. This is a presentation of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, visit our website at www.austinuu.org. Dot O-R-G.